Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey guys, today I'm here with Patricia, Patricia Walsh, Walsh Chadwick. Sorry guys, I'm not in my best form. So if you're listening to this and you're like, what is going on with Megan today? Just, just let it be. So <laughs> Patricia is the author of the new book, Little Sisters, a memoir, which I was sent a copy of and it is so good. I finished it within a week, which may not seem like really fast for some people, but considering I'm in college and having to take care of all these children that were out of school because of the virus, um, it, it was really fast. So <laughs> in a week. And it um, tells the story of her childhood inside a Catholic cult. She is a chartered financial analyst and the founder and president of consulting firm Raven Gate Partners, LLC. Patricia's career in investment business spanned 30 years, culminating as a global partner in Vesco, at Invesco. In addition to sitting on a number of corporate boards, she appears frequently on CNNBC and is a regular blog contributor to CNNBC.com. Her blogs can also be found on her website. Um, so this is not the website we were just talking about, Patricia. This one says www.ravengate.com. Is that no, patriciachadwick.com. Patriciachadwick.com, which I will, I, I have the link for, and I will link that up in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. Uh, Patricia also mentors middle school girls at Our Lady Queen of Angels in Harlem. In 2016, she founded and is the CEO of Anchor Health Initiative, a healthcare company that serves the needs of LGBTQ community in Connecticut. She lives with her husband and two, two children in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a different part of Connecticut than I live, but it's still all the same state. <laughs> I live um, in like New London County. So, oh, you do? Yeah, oh. I'm, I'm a little bit. Uh, and by the way, just pronounce it Greenwich. Greenwich. Okay. See, I'm from upstate New York originally. And ah. when I moved here, some of the pronunciations, I was like, that makes no sense. But then again, I'm from upstate New York where we have these weird like names for our towns <laughs> that people are like, that doesn't uh, make any sense. I'm like, I don't know. That's how we pronounce it. Right. Right. When I lived in uh, Virginia, I lived in what some people call Norfolk, Virginia, but we actually say it like Norfolk. So Norfolk, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look at Massachusetts. It has Worcester, and people Worcester. cannot get there. When like I was Worcester, a kid, I lived in Worcester. Worcester. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we definitely have uh, weird pronunciations for different things. Um, so I'm glad you corrected me, because when I moved here, I was just like, oh, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like Ledger, uh, which uh, is near where I live. It's L-E-D-Y-A-R-D. Yeah. Pronounced like there's a J in there. Ledger. Yeah. Ledger. Yeah. yeah. So um, Patricia, it's like, I would... It's like um, Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's... I think that's a real... It comes from England, basically. I think a lot of the names uh, up here come from England. <laughs> they do. <laughs> so Patricia, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit what it was like growing up for you. Your memoir goes into it into deep detail, so you don't have to go into deep detail. So we can leave a little surprise for 
uh, people who are going to pick up the book, which I really hope they will, because again, so good. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up? Yes, thank you, Megan. Uh, I must say, one of the benefits of writing a memoir for me was the fact that I am blessed with an extraordinarily uh, long memory. And I truly do remember things that happened when I was about two years old. But as far back as I could remember, my family with whom I lived at home at night in an apartment were my mother and my father. And I was the oldest of what became five children. And I clearly remember when my baby sister was born and that was, I wasn't even six years old. So that was um, a lot of the way baby boomers came into this world in packs of, you know, every, <laughs> every year, another one. But during the daytime, during my childhood, my earliest childhood, my life was really being surrounded by about 60 grown-ups, all highly educated people, graduates or still students at Harvard and Radcliffe and other colleges, Boston College, uh, Emmanuel College, all in the Boston Cambridge area. And that was my life. So I didn't think of it as unusual. In fact, I thought of it as really quite fantastic. We would go to mass every morning within our community. We would have breakfast together, lunch together, dinner together. And then at the end of a day, I'd go to my little apartment with my parents. And for me, it was, there was a kind of bliss about it. But I do remember that then things started to change. And one of the first things that changed was my mother no longer wore fancy clothes, pretty colors. All of the grown-ups, 60 adults, and there were 12 married couples among these 60 adults. And by the time when I was little, there were only four or five children. I was one of the very oldest children. And they all started wearing black and the women wore black and white and long skirts down to their ankles. Then shortly after, when I was about four, everybody's name was changed. And my name was a very Catholic name, Mary Patricia. Most people called me Mary Pat. And uh, first it was changed to Mary Patricia. And then one day, all the grown-ups' names started being changed. And we could no longer, I could no longer call my mother, mommy, and my father, daddy. I suddenly had to call my mother, sister, Elizabeth Ann. And I called my father, brother, James Aloysius. Even then, it was okay. I still had a family life and I still had all these fabulous, wonderful grown-ups that were so full of telling me interesting things about the whole world. Two of them came from, from Syria and Lebanon. One came from Spain, one came from Italy. And they were, to me, it was a magical world. And then Father Feeney, the priest that ran this organization, and he ran it in consort with a married woman, obviously not married to him, a married woman named Catherine Clark. And she became Sister Catherine, and Father was just called Father. We called him Father. And then one day he came to me and said, how would you like to change your name? And that was like, no, I did not want to change my name at all. I loved my name, but I also knew that you didn't say no to Father, not my dad, Father. And he, in just an instant, changed my name from Mary Patricia to Anastasia. And that was the name I carried 
for the next 14 years. So that was when I was about four. When I was about six was perhaps the most momentous time in my early childhood. And the, it was a Sunday in November, I remember it clearly. And all the children, there were now 39 children who had you know, come over the last few years. So most of them were still zero, one, two, three years old. Right. All the children that were three years and older, and in my family that included myself, my sister Kathy, and my brother David, we were separated from our parents and forced to live in a house within a compound. We all lived in one compound, believe it or not, right in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we were not allowed anymore to live with our parents. Shortly thereafter, unbeknownst to me because I knew nothing about it, father, Father Feeney, who ran the place, started putting pressure on my parents to take a vow of celibacy and no longer live together as a man and wife. And my parents pushed back and said they wouldn't do it. And eventually he came to them and said, there are 12 married couples and you are the only one that hasn't done it. And so they felt the pressure and one as a reader can logically say, why didn't they just get up and leave? But the fact of the matter is there was a reason that this whole group of people came together. And they came together over a dogma, uh, you know, a rubric of the Catholic Church that said you had to be Catholic to get to heaven. And every one of those adults believed that fervently. And so in the case of my parents, they were willing to make, believe it or not, some enormous sacrifices to keep us together as a small group of people who would, children who would be raised believing that dogma. The, the Archbishop of Boston, the Archbishop of Worcester, priests all over the place were embracing ecumenism at that time. It was right after World War II, 1948, 49, 50. And yet this small group said, no, we are holding to the true dogma of the Catholic Church. Interesting and ironically, Father Feeney was eventually excommunicated, not for holding that dogma, but for disobeying his Jesuit superior, he was a Jesuit at the time. And when he was, when the Pope called him to Rome to defend himself, he refused to go. So we were then excommunicated. And by that time, you know, I was living separately um, from my parents, seeing them every day, but not able to live the same family life. No more bedtime stories with them. No more of my father singing songs in French that he loved to do, things like that. But by the time I was about eight years old, we left Cambridge. And the, one, the whole hundred of us now, because there were now 39 children and 60 adults, moved to uh, kind of the middle of Massachusetts, to a place called Harvard, Massachusetts, on a, in a really bucolic and beautiful area. And we then set ourselves up almost in a monastic life. And it was at that point that Father Feeney himself kind of lost control of the running of the place. And it was Sister Catherine who took over. And she set in place the most draconian rules. Uh, not only were we not allowed to live with our parents, we weren't even allowed now to speak to them. We could only speak to them on those few occasions 
when she would determine that we could have what was called a community meeting. So we were forbidden to speak to them. Then I was forbidden to speak to my brother so the little girls couldn't talk to the little boys. And the title little sister comes from our designation. All the little girls were called little sisters, the grown women, big sisters, little boys, little brothers, and big brothers. She then put in place more and more rules, including a, an unbelievably strict and draconian physical punishment system. I can be fortunately say that there was not sexual abuse in this place, but there was abhorrent physical abuse. abuse. And I, we, we were schooled at home. And when I turned about 14 or 15, I knew my time was coming. We had been told as children that we were the luckiest 39 children in the entire world because we had been dedicated to God from our infancy. And that dedication to God meant that I would become a nun like all the big sisters. And my spouse would be Jesus. And I would be married to Jesus for my life, which of course meant I couldn't be married to anyone else. My own inner desires were entirely different. Even as a little seven-year-old, I would have this dream of sitting in a walled garden and over the top of the garden wall would come a prince. And I, he would take me by the hand and you know, fly me up into the sky and off to a beautiful palace where we would have a fantastic bucolic life and lots of children. I mean, any, maybe any child's dream, I don't know, but definitely a dream or a daydream that for me, uh, I had over and over again. And as I grew older, I, I realized I did not, I, I was not in a position to choose my own life. I was not going to be able to set the path for myself. And at the age of 16, I became a postulant, which is the first step in becoming a nun. And it was one of the saddest days of my life because I thought, okay, the door is now closing. But the other thing that happened was when I became about 13 or 14, in a very normal and natural way, I started becoming interested in boys. But there, we, we weren't allowed to talk to them. We couldn't talk to the little brothers, couldn't talk to the big brothers. And there were no little brothers that were really my age or that I was that interested in. So all of my kind of romantic crushes fell on the big brothers, for which I was excoriated. And, but nobody told me anything about the facts of life. I knew right. nothing. I didn't know what it meant to have a crush. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know why it happened. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was called, I was summoned uh, into Sister Catherine's office. I had a crush that had lasted for two, two and a half years at that point, and it was not going And I did this up. Catherine called me into her office, and interestingly, my mother was there that day, and she informed me that not everyone has a vocation to be a nun, which of course I knew better than anyone else. And as she started talking to me about life in the world, I realized suddenly with horror that she was kicking me out. And this was the only place I had ever known as home. A hundred people in a community with rules and regulations, not being able to talk to my parents, but let me tell you, 
most particularly my father, but my mother also, would send me so many messages that they loved me. My father and I would secretly meet on his birthday. We didn't even celebrate birthdays. And on my birthday. And his job, even though he was an intellectual, he had majored in mathematics and philosophy, his job was to fix the automobiles. And when he would be under the hood of an automobile and I would go by, and he did the same with my three sisters and my brother, he would just lift his head and then lift his hand and would wave his little pinky finger at me. That to me get, made my day. And it was kind of the glue that held our relationship together until we were allowed to see each other, sometimes months later, to talk to each other. So there I was suddenly being told I was being kicked out, which was an absolutely terrifying thing because this was my home and I did not know a single person out in the world, which is the way we referred to it. And I was allowed to stay till I graduated from high school and literally within an hour of graduating from high school, I had not been allowed to tell anyone that I was leaving. My parents did know but not my siblings. I was not allowed to say goodbye to anyone. I was just secreted off the property. And that was basically maybe a long-winded kind of start oh, to finish. It's good. It, it was great. And, and um, like we mentioned, this is just like an overview. Literally the detail that you go into in the book is riveting. And, and kind of horrifying because I'm just like, this is, this is a memoir that's really happened to somebody. Like, and you kind of see like the cult's like mindset, right? Like that it slowly morphed. If, if in the beginning, father was to lay out all this stuff, your parents probably would have been like, no, I'm out. But yeah. then it was slow. It was like slowly they stripped people of everything they loved and slowly stripped them of all their freedoms, you know, and to where you get to the point where you look back and you're just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like I have nothing left. You know, they didn't have their kids anymore. Your parents did. I mean, they got to see you, but they didn't get to be parents. They didn't yeah. get to be married. They didn't like all these things, like you're, you're, your parents were college educated people like your dad. Um, and you didn't say this in the beginning, but he was a professor, like, right. Like yes. when you were little, he was a professor. And then now he was made to, to, you know, fix vehicles. Well, it's very interesting because you brought up the term cult, but you must probably remember in reading the book, the term cult never, never comes up. Yep. And there's a very interesting story. I did not write my memoir with the notion that it was a cult. It was my home. And in so many ways, I loved it. And I loved the people that were part of it. And uh, my daughter, I have twins who are now 26 years old. And when my daughter was a junior, I think, in college, my book was, I was still working on it, but I had basically done the, the primary manuscript. I was doing a lot of editing. And she came home from college one day and she said, mom, I have two things to tell you. Uh, she said, first, you need to stop everything until you finish this book. And secondly, she said, you need to accept the fact that you grew up in a cult. 
And this was my 20 year old daughter. She wasn't trying to be mean. We had a wonderful relationship and I was just dumbstruck. And you know, your audience may think, well, what an idiot you were that you didn't see that this was a cult. I didn't, and I didn't want to. To me, a cult was Jim Jones right. or the Branch Davidians or something like, like that, not where I grew up. And yet now I've you know, done radio shows and done um, you know, book club events. And it's very evident to me that of course it was a cult. It morphed into a cult, as the way you said. And if the parents had all been told up front, this is the plan, they would have said bye-bye. Right. Once they had been there for five, six, seven years, my father no longer being a professor, um, not having published anything. And that's another, it's another very um, strong indication of a cult. They, they strip you mm -hmm. of your your ability to go out on your own so you become stuck how what was he going to do he now had five children 10 years out of teaching is he going to just pick up with a wife five children and go out and make a living and you can understand why people don't leave because they don't know what the consequences are but importantly and really importantly for your audience and for the readers the book is dedicated to my parents and it says to mother and daddy for always letting me know that they loved me. Mm -hmm. Very importantly, this is not a mommy dearest story. To me, this is a love story about a family that could not be broken. And I hope that the readers share that with me. It's a story of resilience. I don't deny that at all. And I'm very happy to say that my parents were supportive of, of my writing the book. I was 55 years old. It was actually my birthday. And I told them that I wanted to write the stories of my childhood. Um, I basically said, you know, 50 years from now, there'll be no more eyewitnesses. Everyone will be gone. Right. And I want to tell it from my, from my point of view, my memoir, I had a great recollection of so many things. But it's only my story. And I very deliberately made it only my story and did yeah. not try to tell anybody else's story. Mm -hmm. But so I waited five years. I didn't even know how to go about it. I had had a career on Wall Street, which is the subject of my current book that I'm writing. Um, because it was I really started at the very bottom of the ladder and I hope it will be a fun book. But um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't know really how the craft of writing. And by the time I started to write, I was 60. I'm now about to be 72. And my father sadly died when I was 59, but he lived to be 90 and that was, you know, so he wasn't around as I was writing the book, but my mother was about 12 years younger than he. And uh, she read every chapter of the book. She, she died, you know, close, you know, about a year and a half ago. But she said parts of the book made her sad, but she said it's all true and you need to publish it. So I felt very strongly that I was publishing it with the blessing of my parents. I had to learn the craft of writing. So I actually went to memoir writing classes, which was fantastic. And uh, you know, when the book came out last year, one of my concerns was what would the other 30, 38 children think of it? 
And of the 39 of us, sadly, six had died. Mm -hmm. But of the rest, at least two thirds of them came to me and said, thank you for writing this book. And it was only then that I realized how many of them suffered from PTSD. Mm. And some of them had been in therapy for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. And that to me, and I'm a spiritual person, I'm a Catholic still, um, to me that was a blessing. That was a grace uh, to write the book. Mm -hmm. because it brought healing to so many of them, many of whom are not in a position to, to write a book themselves. But this has somehow, their story would be a little bit different, of course, but there was so much in common. And for me, that's, that's been wonderful. I think you did very well. I never came away from reading that book where I despised your parents where um, I thought they were awful, you know, cause you were saying I was trying to make it a love story about my parents. What I saw reading the book were parents who truly cared about their children. You know what I mean? Like that you could tell throughout the book that they loved you, mm -hmm. that they really did. Um, and I, I agree with you that you didn't go into detail about other children's stories because they weren't yours. You shared what you experienced, what you witnessed, but you never tried to go so far into their story that it took away from yours. It was yours, your experiences, what you saw, what you experienced. And yes, there were people that were part of that because I mean, obviously if you're living with 60 people, <laughs> they're gonna be part of your story. Uh, but with you saying that you wanted to focus on your story and make it a, a, a story of you know parents who truly love their children, I agree. I think you did a fantastic job at that. I, um, the only people that I came away, I didn't even, I didn't even despise father. I, I despise sister Catherine so bad. <laughs> she was just not a good person. And I just, that's, she was the only person I came away where I was just like, she's a bad person. <laughs> like, that was the only takeaway I had. Like, I, it's been very interesting because of course, um, the story of her death and all is, is, is kind of a fun one for me, but it was so vivid in my, in my psyche. She died two years after she um, kicked me out. And truly that was a, a cathartic moment in many ways. Uh, and, and the place started to crumble after that. But I have often thought, you know, now that I'm much more mature, I've often wondered if she were alive today, I would want to say to her, did something horrific happen to you right. in your childhood? Was this whole drive to love God to the exclusion of all the things that God has created in this world, mm -hmm. the result of your running away from something horrible? Yep. And I, maybe that's the most charitable way in which I can, I can uh, you know, put it, but I sometimes wonder if that isn't the case with other people who have truly created cults. Mm -hmm. uh, I did have, I was at a, doing a library event recently and someone said to me, you talk about writing this book and having a happy childhood and remembering a lot of happiness in your childhood. And she said, you know, but I read the book and it seems to me it just goes from one horrific situation to another horrific situation. And I've thought about that and wondered, did I not put enough cheer in the book 
But the fact of the matter is, it's very interesting for people who have not experienced anything like this. The story seems horrific. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, when you are living it, it is your existence. You know, every single morning when you get up, you're not going to talk to your parents. You're not, you're not going to be allowed to do things. You better behave or there may this huge piece of hose may be used to beat you. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of hours in a day. And looking back, and even then, we had fun. We would do skits. We would, you know, I had my little heifers that I would raise, which gave me some ability to have control over my life. And, you know, we learned a tremendous amount, music, classical music. Uh, and there are parts of my life today that are so influenced by what I learned there. And I hope my second book will share some of, some of those. Silence is one of them. I really love silence. I know my children can do 14,000 things while they're doing their homework. <laughs> I can only do one. Me too. Which is my homework. I cannot even read the newspaper and listen to the opera. Nope. Because Same. if I'm reading the newspaper and listening to the opera, I'm going to hear a beautiful chord or I'm going to know I'm an opera fanatic. And I'm going to suddenly no longer read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I'm simply going to go and listen to the opera. So um, I don't mind that. I don't mind it. I admire my children for being so multi-talented or be able to multitask in so many ways. But the fact of the matter is um, there, are, there are so many things. Every single year since I was kicked out at the age of 17, I go back to a wonderful program that we had and I do it in my own house. I learned to can, can mm -hmm. apples and, and pears and making them into applesauce and pear sauce. To this day, and I will do it again this year, I get three or four bushels and I can them and put them in the boiling water and give them as presents or eat, eat it throughout the year. And I don't put on rock and roll music while I'm doing it. I do the whole thing in silence. It brings me back to that wonderful feeling of what it was like to be engaged in that activity. And recently someone asked me at one of um, an event I did, uh, it was a gentleman who said, would you change anything in your life, in your past life? And what would it be if you could change something? And I thought to myself, I am happily married. I've been married for 35 years. I would marry my husband all over again. I had a fantastic career, which you know, is the subject of my next book. I've traveled the world. I have two ch wonderful children who are, you know, one's out of graduate school now, one's going into graduate school. I have my health, I have energy. And I thought if I changed a single thing way back when, how do I know that the path of my life would be the one that has led me to where I am today? Even right. being kicked out, which was so, so painful, the separation from my parents. And I said I would not change a thing. And I really, really meant that. Yeah, I, I've been asked the same thing because I have have trauma from my childhood and early adulthood. And I was like, but I don't know if I did went back and changed something, if I would be who I am today. And if I would 
have met my husband and had the experience I had. You know, I would not change any of that if that meant I had to give up what I have right now. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So and it's a wonderful thing to be able to see the good that has come to one and not go back and say, oh, if only, oh, if only, oh, if mm -hmm. only. And, and, uh, and I must say, though, back to the point where people say, you know, where was the joy and the happiness? I have the same feelings myself when I think about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. I cannot fathom living the way those six million Jews, you know, stripped of everything, separated from their families, and yet romances occurred uh, in those concentration camps. And uh, in the concentration camp, Teretzin, which was in uh, the che Czechoslovakia then, the Czech Republic, you know, they put all the highly educated artistic people in there. And they let them keep their violins and their cellos. And they wrote music. And they, and sometimes they couldn't perform it. But they even wrote a satirical opera uh, about Hitler, which I have seen and been involved in having produced. And so out of a far worse circumstance, you see how people can have uh, resilience and, and enjoy the happiness, and in their case, for most of them, for the little amount of time that they had left to live. So I, it's hard for people who grew up differently from your own situation, which they can't fathom, to think that it wasn't utter misery, and it was not utter misery. Right, when I look back into my childhood, I definitely see fun times that I experienced, even though there was a lot of other things going on. I, and you too, you learned to ride a horse. I had a horse. When I was reading that, I was like, oh, I can, I can only, I can imagine the joy that you felt to, to ride a horse and learn to ride a horse. Cause I did too, as a child. And uh, to me, I like look back and that's a very happy time you know, to see these things that you got to experience. You learned a lot of things most people didn't learn. You learned canning. Yes. You learned how to raise, um, you know, like you said, raise cows. You had all these things that you got to experience that um, despite the circumstances, other people will never experience in their lives. Did you get to learn to ride side saddle the way I did? I did not learn to ride side saddle, but uh, we, our horse was rescued. Um, my, my parents had a, a friends that had a rescue, horse rescue. They rescued abused horses. So they were kind of like getting overcrowded with too many horses and they offered my parents, do you want a horse? Like, I, we're gonna give you a horse. You just have to have the room. We had 50 acres of land growing up. So that was another experience I got to, you know, and you guys had a lot of land too. So you got to, you know, go right. and explore in the woods. It was a lot of fun, but um, we rescued this horse. You had to be careful um, because he couldn't see out of one eye. He can only see shadows because he was abused. Um, so there were certain things I couldn't do, but yes, he was, he was great. And it was so much fun. And we got to explore all these woods and, and you write a little bit in the book about like you guys doing things in the woods near your house too. So I could, I could definitely relate to that, that despite things that I had been through as a child, I, I found those joys too. So I, I completely understand where you're coming from when you talk about that. Well, that's wonderful to have readers be able to um, associate perhaps their own 
good experiences and also traumatic experiences and have an audience that can somehow be sympathetic. And I've had a lot of that. I, I, I really have. Uh, and I am looking forward to, I'm, I'm working on this second book now because, you know, we didn't discuss the fact that, you know, I had to put myself through college, mm -hmm. even though I came from such an educated environment. But uh, father and sister Catherine's attitude was that college would, you would lose your soul. And so I ended up having to, to do all of that myself and started off as a receptionist for a brokerage firm. And if I had been the receptionist at a car dealership or something, my life would have turned out entirely differently. Mm -hmm. But it was just because I entered uh, the Wall Street of Boston. Uh, <laughs> but I entered Wall Street uh, in the lowest, lowest position and was able to make my way up that ladder. Yeah. Yeah. You do touch on that a little bit in the book as well. Towards the end of the book, you touch on your kind of like experience and and you didn't have like you said earlier you didn't have a lot of worldly knowledge leaving so no. you were just like on your own this person who had never you know experienced the world and it was just like what is what is going on here well when i left the vocabulary of the world was something that was i was it was like a foreign language i had never heard a swear word i had never heard even a slang word I didn't know any football players, baseball players. I was on a bus one day and a man turned to me and said, has anyone ever told you you look like Lauren Bacall? I didn't have a clue who Lauren Bacall was. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was ugly or pretty. I didn't know whether I was smart or stupid. I knew nothing. And 20 years later, I was at a wonderful fundraiser out in East Hampton, Long Island. And it was a fancy affair, but they had these great picnic tables. I just remember the night so clearly, and it was a beautiful, gorgeous night. I was sitting at this picnic table, and a man in a tuxedo was sitting across the table from me, had no idea who he was, and he leaned across the table, and he said to me, has anyone ever told you you look like Lauren Bacall? <laughs> and I knew at that point to be flattered. And, um, and, but it was just like the very same words and put me right back into that position I had been in on that bus where I wouldn't even talk to strangers because, right. you know, they were dangerous. So. Well, Patricia, the time goes by really fast. Um, as we wrap up the podcast, what is something you'd like to leave the audience with? I'm really hoping at this point in time, they're super curious and want to grab your book because <laughs> the details I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. I was very thankful I got sent a copy because the details in your book, just amazing. You are, an, you are a very talented writer. Um, but what would you like to leave the audience with? Well, thank you. I, I do want them to know that uh, the dedication is important because they will go into a place that's very, can be troubling and dark and may be uh, difficult and they may get emotionally upset. But remember, there is light at the end of this tunnel. It comes out. It's a story of, of more than survival. Um, I go from you know, realizing I have to survive when I leave to thriving. And it's a story that is, is meant to be upbeat. It's about resilience. And I hope it's actually something that can help people and realize that sometimes when things seem really dark, there is a way out. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Megan. I really, really appreciate it. 
Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.